Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And from my office in beautiful Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Bela and I were both on the faculty at Clarkson University, and when we were there together, we would have a lot of interesting conversations about how the world is changing, and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We'd do this over coffee or lunches, time allowed. And almost two years ago, I moved to Germany, and a little while ago, Bela retired. Uh, but Bela had this idea to continue our conversations in the form of a, con a podcast and invite, invite others to listen in. Uh, honestly, I thought this was a horrible idea. I, I don't consider myself a podcast guy. I hate the way I sound when I'm recorded. Uh, and I didn't think anybody would be interested. Um, but sure enough, as usual, Bela was right. And we've had a great time so far over a year now of lots of interviews and interesting conversations. So thank you for joining us this week as uh, we talk to some interesting people that we've met uh, to share their stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to finding happiness in life and at work. So Bela, tell us about this week's episode. Yeah, a great episode this week. Uh, but before we dive into the interview, I just want to remind our listeners that one of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders that we can all identify with. We've had coffee roasters on the show, software developers, business consultants, cafe and restaurant owners. We're not trying to discuss how to start the next Facebook or Google. What we want to do is bring you stories to you that hopefully will inspire you to realize, hey, I can do that, and then inspire you to take the next step in starting your business journey. So this week's guests are Mike and Shelley Spain, a husband and wife couple that recently started Seneca, a fine food restaurant located in Saratoga Springs, New York. They have worked in the industry for many years and have decided to make a run of it on their own. This is a great story, Bela, and it was really interesting to hear kind of the back end of how restaurants start and a lot of the lingo and stuff. So I really enjoyed this. But before we dive in, uh, let me take a second to remind our listeners that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. And to us, this is a sponsorship that makes perfect sense. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. Yeah, you and I are truly excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor. We both know that they think like entrepreneurs, bringing a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So we're happy to tell our listeners, if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with them? So for more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner. If you are an old-school phone person like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or if you are of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly at his firm's website at philipslidle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. 
And it'll be great for us if you let Rich know that you heard about Phillips Lionel from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. All right, with that said, let's jump right into today's interview with Mike and Shelley Spain. Hello, listeners. Today I'm here with Mike and Shelley Spain. They are founders of Seneca, a restaurant located here in Saratoga Springs. So, uh, Mike and Shelley, when you're at a uh, social event, and uh, let me direct this one to you, Shelley. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you're at a social event and someone comes up to you and they introduce themselves to you and they ask you, so what do you do? How do you answer that question? Well, I usually always say I cook for a living. Uh, it's been for the last about 13 years I've been cooking. Uh, and then most recently now I get to say that I am now a chef owner of a restaurant. Oh, okay, excellent. Great response. Uh, and uh, so you guys are both chefs? Both chefs. Trained as chefs at uh, a particular place? or uh, We both graduated from the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park, New York. CIA. Yes. The other CIA. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know right where that is because I grew up in Wappinger's Falls. Oh, there you go. So uh, I can remember. It's actually home of the closest wood-fired grill to Saratoga Springs. Oh, is that right? Wappinger's Falls is? Yeah. That's right. I didn't know that. But I can remember going to the CIA because they used to do like a Sunday lunch or brunch or something, and it was really low cost. This is in the 80s, I think. <laughs> uh, and it was really low cost, and the food was great, and it was wonderful. And uh, so what made you guys decide to go there? Well, I met Mike in 2009 when we were working at the in Elms. 2008. I'm sorry, in 2008 <laughs> uh, when we were working at the Elms in Ridgefield, Connecticut, under Chef Brendan Walsh, uh, who is now a dean at the CIA. But between him and my chef, who graduated from the Culinary Institute, they both kind of encouraged me. I was going to go to Johnson & Wales, and they both encouraged me to go to the Culinary Institute. Oh, nice. So you were working in the restaurant business. Yes. And then decided to go to, to uh, further, culinary. Yeah, further my education. Yeah. And how about you, Mike? Uh, for me, I grew up in uh, Bristol, New Hampshire, and for me it was out of necessity. I needed a job. My mom... Uh, referenced me to a restaurant up the street to be a dishwasher. The Cliff Lodge, no longer available, or no longer uh, open. Um, you know, I, I started as a dishwasher, kind of moved my way up, and, you know, it was kind of, for me, it was, I wanted to move my way up because I didn't want to wash dishes anymore, and I made salads, appetizers, didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to work the line, and, you know, the line cooks were very intriguing to watch, and you know, it's for me like the, the kitchen is it's very competitive, and you're always trying to work your way to be better in the kitchen. And you know, I was going to I was in college. I set out for criminal justice. My end goal was to be a lawyer, and uh, you know, it just kind of the the culinary industry consumed me. And I thought, well, I'm going to career change, and I'm going to convince my parents to support my career change. Why not go to one of the best schools yeah. in America? So that Excellent. was my decision. <laughs> Excellent. And, and so uh, after you guys graduated from uh, Culinary Institute of America, what was the next step? My, my next step was, so while I was in school, that's where I met Brendan Walsh and uh, Shelley was in Connecticut. And I took the job there right when I left school. And I think I worked there for about two years. And, uh, you know, I, I think I kind of just felt like I was ready for the next step. And I, I opened 
or I helped open um, a dinner scene in York, Maine, and I kind of did my own thing and worked there for a little while. So, you know, so I, I kind of worked where I was working when I was in school, and that's how I met Shelley. Yeah. So when you uh, when you graduate from uh, the CIA, uh, and I know nothing about the food I- industry, so if it's a dumb question, I apologize. But when you graduate from there, what's what's your typical first job? Uh, usually you end up going to be a line cook. So they have a program, it's called externship. And what they do is, it's very unique in the sense that halfway through your degree, they, for six months, I believe, they make you go get a job in a kitchen to see what it actually will entail day in and day out and make sure it's something you really want to do. So usually after graduating, you either become like lead line cook or sometimes you know you find like a sous chef like a junior sous chef job or something of that nature okay so uh help our listeners sort of understand the terminology of of the restaurant business so a line cook does what i think with any career in same culinary is it's an entry-level position and you're kind of just getting your foot in the door okay You, you for culinary and i would say for any listener that wants to be in this this industry is a find a find an area you love and find a restaurant you like, and then just get your foot in the door. Doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Because if you believe in yourself, then you're gonna work your way up, and you're gonna learn a lot. And maybe you stay there, or maybe you learn as much as you can, and you move on. Sure. And and so if I'm a line cook, um, cooking steaks, um, deep frying French fries. I mean, I, what am I doing? Usually, you're, yeah, you're responsible for your station. You know, you could be a uh, you could be working grills, saute. Garmage is usually like cold foods. Okay. Salads. I mean, you could be the fry guy who, yeah, you're frying French fries okay. and, and, you know, chicken wings. So you have sort of a station and you're responsible for that. Mm-hmm. And then when the orders come in, you know, you got to do something. You, That's right. You do you it. You do it. Yeah. For, your dishes. for that, for that piece of the dish, right? Because sometimes a dish may be several different. That's right, yeah. Okay. From multiple stations. Okay, and then so what does a, a, a sous chef do? So a sous chef would be like the second in command. Um, so it'll usually oversee like day-to-day operations, uh, take over probably nightly ordering, making sure everything's wrapped up and closed properly, or vice versa, everything's opened up correctly and stations are set up. Okay. So it's the second second-hand man to either your executive chef or owner, to, you know, chef owner, depending on how the system is. Okay. And so uh, how long ago did you guys decide we want to open up our own place together? Maybe a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And what sort of, what was the thinking process or what sort of inspired you to do that? I would say just kind of maturity and confidence. It was... Um, we, myself, I, um, I helped with, with Druthers and I opened the Albany location. That was the first restaurant I've ever opened from the start all the way up to the opening. And same with Schenectady location. And it was, you learn, you learn a lot. So you've been through, you, you've seen day one or yeah. actually pre-opening, right? right? You've seen the setting up and the getting going and all that stuff. So great training for you to say, mm-hmm. that's what this experience is like. And I made my mistakes working at Druthers, <laughs> or at least some of them, as That's opposed right. to when I opened yeah. up my own place. Well, you know, every place you open, I think, 
is the kitchen is going to be set up differently and you think like wow i wish i did that differently yes you know we also have an incredible advantage is uh shelly's father is uh he designs kitchens oh wow yeah he's been doing that for 40 years Mm -hmm. um yeah so it's it's always been very near and dear to me especially when i i first got into the cooking end of the restaurant industry he was uh he would always joke and he's like i'll design your first restaurant and i'm like all right dad and many years later he did was that his own business uh he did have his own business uh, about 20 years ago for a portion of it and now he works out of massachusetts okay yeah so both of you have a little bit of entrepreneurship in the family yes that's right (laughs) yeah yeah okay excellent um so you decided uh, a little while ago a year ago to open up a restaurant so how did that go sort of talk about that process were you scared i would say still still scared it's not were you it's we still are scared yes Uh, no you know we were not once were ever worried about the food or anything as far as the restaurant goes i think the biggest fear is the business side yes you know your location and your demographic what uh what's your clientele going to be like and you know and and that's that was kind of our our fear which we had to really learn but you know as far as the food the food wise i mean we were pretty confident we thought you know we we can cook good food and well you're both chefs (laughs) so hopefully that part yeah you can nail right so let me ask a question when when at the cia do they give you any education or training about business how to open your own restaurants sort of what the economics look like you do uh if you do the four-year the bachelor program you definitely have a more in-depth look at it uh but we both just went for our associates and they do give you some there's a rush uh, menu development is uh one of the classes that you take and it's essentially you creating your own restaurant and it starts with the demographic what you're going to serve and and goes all the way up um so it definitely gives you like a starter package like in-depth look of opening up a restaurant and actually in 2009 when spain was at the culinary institute he created seneca so about 10 years ago it was a class project oh really i named a restaurant seneca at the cia oh 10 years ago oh wow isn't that great so Uh, we've mentioned Druthers a couple times. Uh, previous episode, I, I interviewed Chris Martel, one of the founders of Druthers. And Chris and Brian were students in my entrepreneurship class, <laughs> and their business plan was Druthers. That's, that's so Yeah, that's it was awesome. like nine years ago or something. Wow. So here's another restaurant that started sort of as a, as a university or college project. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's easy when you're in school and you just kind of do the concept but it's, anything's possible right, in a concept right, right? Yeah. and you get the confidence yeah excellent so uh, you were working at druthers you helped set up a couple of their new locations so that gave you a lot of great experience and what what were you doing during this time shelly well i worked at druthers saratoga i was running the saratoga location for about two years when I first moved up here, I worked at Saratoga National Prime mm, yes. um, for about three years. I was okay. there, so I've been just cooking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you were—you run- said you were running. I was, uh, yes. Yeah, so when so you're I doing left, more than cooking. Yeah, 
when I left National, I ended up running the Saratoga Kitchen. Yeah. So here again, you're getting some good business experience, mm -hmm. right? And it's not just about cooking. Cooking is one element of the restaurant business. There's a lot of other things that are really, really important. I always say one of the hardest elements with, with management yeah. is dealing with people. Yeah. And it's one of the most unknown elements coming into the day. You don't know what kind of mood people are in, your employees, um, you know, are they showing up? You know, and it's just, that's the hardest thing. And it's, I guess, if, yeah, if you could every day just go in and cook food and serve the food, that would be great. But it's just, every day you come in, you're, you're just, you're thrown so many loops and you're just kind of putting out little fires, as I always say. Right, and, and if the sous chef calls in sick, or one of the line, the, the grill person calls in sick, you still got to grill. Got to learn how to be in two places at once right? or find someone. So yeah. I, somebody once told me that if that uh, if you open a restaurant, you better, if you own and open a restaurant, you better know how to cook because there will be a day when the chef walks out. Is that, is that well, true? We hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're pretty lucky in that, yeah. in that aspect. Uh, yeah. No, well, it, it is, it's like, you know, kind of touching on what Mike said. It's a lot of moving parts that you're responsible for and orchestrating all at once. I mean, even if on a great day, your whole staff shows up. Sometimes the purveyor with the food truck is late, late and it's like you lose time in prepping or, or a product sure. that you needed to serve. So it's definitely juggling a lot of things. Um, majority of them are usually out of your control. So it's just a matter of kind of taking it in stride and, and doing the best you can with what you have. Yeah. So how did you guys decide on a Saratoga location? We love Saratoga. We did. We moved up here about eight years ago uh, and just fell in love with it. Yeah. The, the history, the food scene, the the fact that it's a city, but it has a very like town culture to it. Um, yeah. Very we good. We love Saratoga. So, and, and Saratoga is, is, uh, has a huge tourism business during the racing season, which is uh, mid-July to the end of August or something like that, right? Eight weeks or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so then I assume you're super busy. And when I was talking to Chris Martell of Druthers, I said, well, almost anyone can open a restaurant during racing season and, and be successful. Um, how about the rest of the season? How do, you, how do you sort of build up that steady clientele? Well, I think it's important to set yourself apart, um, figure out what it is that you do well and, and something that makes people want to come back. Yes. And I think we did a great job when opening Seneca and, and doing our business model and our plan is we built a lot of it over our wood-fired grill. And it's something that's very unique to this area. It's a flavor and a type of way of preparing food that other people can't you know provide you if you go to other restaurants yes. so it definitely gives us an opportunity to play around and be more creative with food in, in ways that can't be duplicated at least not you know in another restaurant in yeah. Saratoga so that's one of your distinctive features is 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 you have a, a wood-fired oven right. grill did I, did I say wood-fired grill yeah. wood-fired grill okay um, and as you think about Saratoga, okay, so you say, okay, we want to open it in Saratoga, then I guess the next step is you got to find a location. Mm -hmm. How long did that take you, and what was that process like? Mm, a little over a year. We, you know, we had our hearts set on a, uh, a location 
on Broadway before this location and you know it went pretty well and then we just kind of after we met with an architect it just you know for what we wanted to do it just wasn't going to work out mm. I mean, to have if you need we needed a space that was going to allow us to have an open kitchen and you know still keep it small enough where we wanted to be able to control a lot of uh, the service and the food and all that aspect so we, we just kind of scratched it and it was that was a tough day that was kind of you know we kind of got a little taste of the business side where it's just some things don't work out right and um, you know we went back to the drawing board and then this location we, we caught wind of it and we checked it out and we just you know we knew right when we saw it we kind of knew the first thing we wanted to be was was near Broadway that was kind of key for us is to get that foot traffic people walking around and and um, you know we knew the space the high ceilings everything and you know we went back to the architect and we threw some plans together yeah and so did you guys buy the building or do you have a lease no yeah we have a lease we rent okay okay and then so I, I imagine one of the next steps is right you you have an architect you're working with and you got to figure out what the look and feel of the place will be like how did you guys come up with that so we knew that the we wanted the wood-fired grill that was that was the first thing we knew was going in this restaurant Not, did one of you have experience with a wood-fired grill to say hey that's what we really want or was how did that come about when we worked in connecticut there was a it was a small wood-fired grill and you know nothing like nothing like this but uh like, yeah, yeah, we got a lot of, but we still worked with a lot of the flavor, and we found that like, you know, even just cooking a cheeseburger on that grill, just you got a, a unique flavor. So we loved it. And then about three years ago, um, Shelly took me to Vegas on my thirtieth birthday, and we went to Bizarre Meats and Jose Andres. And as soon as we walked in, there was this like eight foot open live fire wood fire grill and i think we stood there for like 10 minutes just staring at it like what, what it, yeah it looks like a medieval cooking device and we loved it i mean we had like a 10 course tasting menu and i think like six of the things came off that grill and i was in love and it was just a matter of time when we were going to actually have a grill like that yes yes oh cool and so when you want to have something unique like that, I, I assume you just don't go to the restaurant supply place and say, I want a wood-fired grill. That sounds like to me it's something that's sort of custom-made. and That's right. Um, so the company's grill works. One of the big challenges we found was um, a lot of these live-fire grills, a lot of them are um, NSF certified. So they're not for a commercial cooking uh, application. And... Grillworks is a lot of these celebrity chefs now are using them, and, and that's kind of how we got to know them and the Jose Andres grills. So, you know, I, I started calling them, and we started just kind of working out what we could do, and we actually found out that the one we had, the uh, it's a XO72 series where you actually you build the hearth and then you place the grill into the hearth. We're actually one of the first restaurants to have that grill. I see. I see. And so you've been open now for about a year? Or how long? It's like six months. Five months. Six months. Okay. Yeah, five months. So you got to experience the summer racing season? 
We opened August first. Okay, so right, yeah, right so in the right, heart, right in the heart right of it. The, so four months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a long time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we exactly right in the heart of it. We opened our doors and we were at it. You know, from day one. So one of the things that always sort of uh, surprises me not, doesn't surprise me, but makes me wonder of how you cope with it is is the restaurant business. Right, there's meal time. So there's like two hours where you're freaking crazy busy, and then the rest of the time, not so maybe busy, except maybe racing season. I'm sure you're probably busy a good part of the day, but sort of, you know, in the normal, under normal circumstances, if you have a lunch crowd, and you have a dinner crowd, and that's it. So how do you, when it comes to staffing, right? So how do you sort of, how can you staff that type of uh, peaks and valleys that you have in the restaurant business? Well, everyone, um definitely loves to eat between six and eight o'clock i will say whenever i answer the phone everyone wants to make a reservation at that time so it's definitely always a challenge for us to how i look at it is i want to always offer something a product an atmosphere a drink you know whatever it may be that really gets a customer like they want to come here that bad that all right you have 5:30 available I'll take 5:30 or you have 8:30 available I'll take it so we're only open for dinners okay. um and we are closed Sunday night Monday and Tuesday night we do Sunday brunch so we don't have as much as a staffing struggle cuz it definitely is hard I mean there are lulls in the day you know when I worked at Druthers where you know, lunchtime would be crazy busy, and then it's kind of like steady, if a little lower than steady, until all of a sudden your dinner rush comes. So it's definitely just a matter of finding the right people that can handle a certain volume, right. and then just you know assigning said person to that volume. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about finding finding the right people. So the two of you own this restaurant, right? You're, you're partners in, in all meanings of the word. And, and so how do, you, how do you decide how to hire a line cook or how do, how do you hire a wait staff? What's your process for that? What do you look for? We, look, we hire people. We don't hire employees. Um, you know, skill is great, but passion is better. It's, you want to find people that want to be here that want to better themselves and maybe one day we'll after maybe a year or two we're going to move on and move on to something either better or maybe hopefully open their own thing and that's kind of one thing that always stuck in my mind was when I interviewed at the restaurant in Connecticut I sat down with Chef Brennan Walsh and I think we talked for 45 minutes and I realized he didn't ask me one question about cooking because I don't think he cared at that time, can I cook? I think he was like, are you a good person? Do I want you in my kitchen? And that's kind of, I've always used that philosophy and that's kind of what we did here was, we hired people that are passionate about cooking. Like this is their life, this is their job and they want to be here. They want to be better and you know, kind of once you do that, it makes it easier. Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting you bring that up <clears throat> because of uh, the 60 or so podcasts I've done, that's been a common theme from business owners is, is they hire people for attitude because they figure if they have the right attitude, we can train them 
to, to fit within the organization or to do the types of things we want to do. That's a better way of saying mm-hmm. it, right? But if they don't have the right attitude, game, o- game over. Right. Yeah, right. exactly. Game over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what's your turnover rate like? Is it, is, I, I don't, well, maybe you haven't been open long enough to, yeah. to get, experience that. <laughs> yeah. It's, so far in the kitchen, we've, we've had no turnover. And, yeah. You know, it's very low. It's, That's a good sign. Yeah. And, and how about uh, now that we're out of the busy season, the, tour, uh, the real busy season, uh, uh, how's business been for you guys? It's been great. Yeah. It's been steady. So when, when people talk about Seneca in Saratoga, what do, you, what do you think they say about the restaurant? Or what do you hope that they say about the restaurant? <laughs> a lot of, well, what a lot of people tell me uh, is, man, I'm always trying to get a reservation for that place. <laughs> That's usually okay. what I hear a lot. Uh, what I great hope. food, yeah. Um, beautiful atmosphere, great cocktails. Yeah. So, how do you guys uh, market market the restaurant? What do you guys do? Uh, social media has been pretty incredible because that we did have a couple um, local papers mm-hmm. do some a story. A story. new restaurant opens in town. Yeah. So yeah. we definitely had like the Saratogian, the Times Union the Albany Business Journal, I believe, was another one. So we, we had some recognition and, and a couple stories through that, but we kind of just opened our doors August 1st and made a the, Facebook page and yeah, <laughs> word of mouth. Yeah. The strongest form of marketing is word of mouth. It might take a little longer to get to where you want to be, but I think it's a more concrete strategy yes. once, you're, once you're there. Yes. And so that brings up an interesting point about social media. So how, how, what kind of role does uh, uh, applications like Yelp play in, in a business like this? Huge, in my opinion. Mm. I, I feel... Good or bad? Or? Yelp, so Yelp, I think, is, is, is important when you have people coming out of town. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to Google top 10 restaurants in Saratoga Springs. And if you have a bad Yelp rating, you're going to be down, and they're going to see three or four restaurants before you, and they're probably going to call them. I mean, we've had people come in here and tell us that, you know, we were one of the top restaurants on Yelp, and that's why that's why they're here, right? Yep. You know, so it's it's sad in effect that for other places like that's you know people aren't going to experience that because of that reason, but you know, I guess you just you have to be on top of your game and. It's tough. You have people sometimes you have guests come in and they seem like they're having a great time, and then they go home and you know you get that two star and you just it's frustrating because you're like, boy, I really wish I knew that because we really could have maybe turned their experience around or helped them out or you know anything we could have done because you know Yelp should be a constructive criticism. Yes. It should help us better our business. Yes. So uh, with respect to customer satisfaction. What do you guys actively do to sort of monitor that? And you know, some people are more vocal; those are the easy ones to identify. Yeah. Yep. But other people are quiet; they don't say anything. You know, maybe they left some food on their plate. So, is there anything that you guys do, or your waitstaff does, to try to you know figure out what's going on if you have a happy customer or not? Yeah, I, th- I think the the most important thing is just to kind of go over and ask. You mm-hmm. know, we actually. Shelly and I have a unique situation right now where we hire, we just hired another very talented chef and 
we actually now one of us is in the front okay front of the house and then yeah. we'll take turns and the other one is in the back and you know i think that's a that's a huge advantage because we're able to go over and maybe talk to a table that we think might be having a bad time and just be like what's going on I mean, mm -hmm. is there something different and if, if all of a sudden there's a food aversion or an allergy or a food preference it's we have that ability to you know we know what we have in the kitchen and we know yes. we can accommodate them at that time and it's i think that's really important and we're able to kind of turn people's experience yeah. around pretty quick yeah you know i'll, I'll say that there's a lot of uh, restaurants that you go to that the the manager or the owner come around and 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 they'll ask you well how is everything and they'll that's it one question there's really no engagement mm -hmm. and i can remember when we lived in california there was a restaurant there where the owner chef came around and he engaged in a conversation his first question wasn't how is the food right his first question was something else if you knew us he'd say well how are the kids or well i was always taught if you're a chef you already know how the food is <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah. right but what tastes good for you may not taste good for me right so there's that variability in this business it's it's sort of interesting right there's no mm -hmm. it's not like selling electronics where there's a specification you need <laughs> <laughs> right everyone's spec is a little different that's right uh, so it sounds like you guys do some of that it, it, and you have the opportunity to do that because one of you be, can be in the back in the kitchen the other can be up front here and, and sort of gauge the, the success are there sometimes when when there's a bad night or you know some recipes not working for you or have you had any of those uh sort of moments where you've had a plant do an audible you know this the the chicken's not working tonight for whatever reason yeah we've actually had some we've had some dishes where i think the first one went out and just we didn't love it yeah and that was it we took it right off okay you know it's just we're not gonna okay let's just push it out tonight and we'll work on it tomorrow like no if we're not happy with it that's not going out to the dining room yeah well, it's important, I think, for me in Spain and and for everyone else in the staff, a lot of people that come in here, this is their first time eating here. So if we were to, like he said, you know, there's been times where we made a dish and it just didn't come out exactly what we wanted. The worst thing we could do is be like, all right, well, we'll sell these 10 portions and then start over tomorrow. It's like, well, those nine, 10 people that got that dish is not getting the hundred ex like the experience of Seneca not getting the hundred percent right. so it would be really unfair to us and unfair to our customers if that was the mindset that we took so yeah excellent point excellent point yeah. so you guys are uh, a couple so what's it like starting a business as a couple right and you're like together all day long all night long no. <laughs> you know you work together yeah. does does I mean, people romanticize about that. Uh, and, and so what are some of the good things about that? And what are some of the challenges that you've, you've encountered? You know, we, boy, she looked right. <laughs> <after my>. You're <laughs> going first. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. We've been working together for over 10 years now. And you, you want to talk about putting your relationship to the test. You're in a kitchen and it's stressful. It's with sharp, with sharp things, <laughs> and not sharp and hot yeah. things. You know, they're they're long hours. It's hot. You're tired, and you know any little thing can set you off. And you know we've had days where it's just like, all right, we're not talking to each other for a little bit, and then we've had great days. And you know, I, I think the the best thing for me and the thing I love is 
I mean, Shelly reads my, she reads my mind. She knows what I'm thinking. She knows what I'm going to do. And that's why we work so well together and, you know, trust, like, you know, go ask any chef and sous chef combo in the world or any business partners, like, what's the biggest thing you probably want? It's trust. Yeah. You, know, you want to be able to trust your, your business partner and, you know, there's nobody else I trust more than hers. So it's, that's probably the best thing about working together. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree a lot. Of, I get that question a lot when I'm like on the floor and they're like, how do you work with your husband? Like, how did you, and I think one of the biggest things for me is when I first met Spain, um, we were working together as, as line cooks and then he ended up running the restaurant and I was still a line cook. And one of the things I love is that he's very passionate and he's always like never going to ask someone to do something that he won't do himself and, you know, leading by example. And it's always been very inspiring to be around. So we had that foundation, if you will, that base first of, of just coworkers and then essentially a, a chef to a line cook. And then, you know, eventually it turned romantic right. and now we're here. But it's always really important because we built that trust and that foundation with each other. And then from there, it was just a matter of building. I mean, like you said, there are some days where we're like, Nope, you go to that way, I'll go this <laughs> way. Like, we don't always see eye to eye. I mean, I think we're pretty similar in our cooking techniques and our approaches, but definitely not always. You know, I'll look at him or he'll look at me and be like, why? You know, like, that doesn't make sense. But for the most part, we have that respect. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's, it's really easy because even if we don't agree, there's never going to be a boundary or a line crossed. Yeah. because of that respect. Yeah, that's great. Great, great response. So you've, you've been at this now at, at Seneca here for a number of months. Sort of, what's the biggest surprise that you have had in, since you decided to open the restaurant up to now? What's been the biggest sort of, holy crap, we didn't expect that, good or bad? Um, mm. I would say people. I... I, people always amaze me every day. I like feel like, oh, I'm starting to get a handle on people, and especially the front of the house aspect. I I mean, in culinary school, I, I waited tables and bartended to get money, but I never made it like a career thing. It was more a survival aspect. So being out here for the last couple of months and, and engaging with like customers and really seeing, I would say my holy crap is people. Because like mm -hmm. some people, I'm like, I get you like I know exactly what you're looking for and then there's other people where I'm like oh, you don't even know where to begin like I don't know how to not even that they're necessarily having a bad time like they're looking for a certain type of wine or if they're looking yes. and I'm just like I let me go find someone else I can help you yeah yeah so I would, that would be my answer people yeah I would I would go with our clientele I I would say I, I knew we were going to have a good clientele and you know, our, our goal was for people to come in here and have a good time, but, you know, I would say for the most time, we for the most part, we have people come in here and they're fun. I mean, I love kind of, I, I, I didn't think I would love at first being in the front because I've never done that. And it really is fun sometimes to just talk to tables that they're just as passionate about as food, as food, with food as I am, but they're, you know, they just love to eat the food and 
you know, it's that's good. That's why we're here. Yeah, yeah. We want more people like that. That's what we need. Perfect, perfect. So <clears throat> I'm going to try to wrap this up. We, we've been going at it for a, a, a while here. Um, if uh, if I'm a listener to this podcast and um, I'm inspired by the two of you and and I, I go to my significant other and I say, you know what, we should open a restaurant or just open a business together. Let's, let's say restaurant. What would your top two or three words of advice be for them, to them? I would say set your goal. Um, have, have success be measurable. Find something that you can measure to be successful and don't worry about money anything like that because I think if you can focus on the success and hitting what you're trying to attain the money will follow all right I I would also say you're only as good as the people you surround yourself so kind of touching upon what Mike said earlier about like hiring people um, I would definitely say that's really important like find a crew find a staff that is not only knowledgeable in whatever you're doing, but work well with each other. And and we joke around, but Seneca, like we're a little family. Mm -hmm. I mean, we spend a lot of time together, a lot of, more time than I know I spend with my family, you know, down in Connecticut. So I would say people, find, yeah. find people that you, good knowledgeable people you want to surround yourself with. Well, great. Well, Mike and Shelly, thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Hey, I appreciate it. Yeah, us. it was a great story. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will like it. Thanks. Bela, what a cool look into the restaurant industry. I really learned a lot. What struck you as uh, the most interesting and important takeaways from this interview? So, you know, one of the things that you and I have uh, debated in the past is this notion of if you have entrepreneurial uh, desires, uh, do you start right out of school? Uh, or do you go work for someone else, uh, learn the ropes, and then start? And uh, so here's an example uh, where uh, Mike and Shelly uh, worked in the restaurant industry. Uh, they both went to the Culinary Institute of America, uh, which is a, a chef school um, and um, a very well-known one. And then they worked uh, at a a, a restaurant called Druthers. Actually, Chris Martell, the founder of Druthers, was a, a guest on the uh, podcast a few episodes ago. Uh, so you can listen to that one as well. And one of the things that Mike did for them was he actually opened uh, two of their restaurants. So Mike really learned the ropes at uh, starting a restaurant, you know, finding space, ordering equipment, hiring new staff, etc. cetera. Uh, so I think he leveraged that into some great confidence for himself to say, hey, I can do that. Uh, and then I think they decided to open uh, Seneca, which is the name of their restaurant. Very different than Druthers. Uh, it's, a, it's a fine food restaurant. Seneca is a fine food restaurant uh, where Druthers is more of a micro pub, uh, brew pub uh, type of uh, uh, place. Um, so I think uh, some really interesting lessons here and it was a great demonstration that getting some hands-on skills uh, does well for you uh, and, and for you to get those skills sort of before you plunge into it on your own. I, I agree. And I think that 
it's a nice way to join the community of entrepreneurs that almost every city in the country that I've been to, in small town and you name it, everything in between, that there's a group of entrepreneurs that want to help each other succeed. You know, maybe it's a little bit of coopetition, but I've really found everywhere in the world that I've been, there's people who have started businesses and are willing to help others learn. And the best way you can do that is literally if you're right out of school or you want to make a career change and you're not sure you know what you need to know to to do this and you maybe you don't have enough funding or resources to to do this the best way you can do it is go work for somebody who's going through it and you'll learn not only how to do it but you'll learn the network of people that can help you um along the way so i thought that was a, a really neat story and a really thread a neat thread connecting two episodes uh and two people that you interviewed bella um, the second thread that was there, I thought, was this connection between school projects and actual bricks and mortar startups. What are your thoughts there, Bela? Well, you know, you and I both teach entrepreneurship, so we may have a little bias here. Uh, but I will say that also Druthers, uh, Chris and his brother Brian, were both in my class uh, a number of years ago. And Druthers was their sort of business plan for the class. And we heard how Seneca uh, uh, was a project, a class project that Mike did uh, in one of uh, his uh, college classes. So I think there's value here. Uh, you sort of, uh, you know, you either you either do your business plan or your business concept on your own, you know, in your kitchen at night. <laughs> uh, and or if you uh, have the opportunity to do it within a more structured environment, uh, whether it be. Uh, in a formal class or whether it be in one of the many sort of uh, less formal classes, uh, workshops, workshops that, yeah, or sprints yeah, yeah. that are done uh, for entrepreneurship community. I think it gives you a way, a fo focused way to think about it. Uh, it gives you some tools to apply. Uh, it gives you some real time feedback. So I think there's some value there. Uh, I think it helps you get to the finish line, whatever the finish line is. Uh, a little quicker uh, because it's it's helping to keep you a bit focused. Uh, so I think there's value there, and uh, and again, it doesn't need to be a formal university-based entrepreneurship course. It it could be one of these many other uh, types of opportunities that are available. Uh, what do you think, Mike? Oh yeah, doing something in a controlled. It's like learning to drive. You should drive. You should not get into New York City traffic, right, or Berlin traffic, right, for the first time to learn how to drive, right? What do you do? You go to a parking lot where there's no cars and you figure out how to do it in a safe environment, low-stress environment. Um, and I think that, you know, it's developing a business concept uh, is exactly the same way, uh, that you need to do it in an environment um, that's kind of safe, that, again, like you mentioned, getting feedback, learning how to use tools, uh, entrepreneurship is by its nature an iterative process full of pivots and changes. If you can do some of that um, before there's money at stake, uh, you're, it's well to your advantage. And I think it also trains your mind to think, when I say think entrepreneurially, it's kind of trite, but think in terms of looking at opportunities and looking at competition and looking at uh, how you can be unique or differentiate, uh, looking at your costs, looking at your pricing models, and all these things in a more systematic way that you're going to have to deal with. And if you're dealing with it in the chaos of buying a building, installing a kitchen or whatever it is, the equipment that you're doing, trying to retain your human capital, trying to find uh, customers, it's, it's very hard to do all those things well at the same time. 
I even know a couple of my colleagues who are talking at, at universities where they're talking about or have done all students, no matter what you're studying, what field you're in, all students must take a class in entrepreneurial thinking because they want everybody, whether you're in medical school or an engineer or a historian, to think entrepreneurially, to think about the opportunities that are out there, to think about the resources that you have, to think about opportunities and think about ways that you can make things happen. Um, so I, I think, you know, again, building off this, and like you said, we're biased, but I think that, you know, when done right, and I think there's a lot of bad, like anything else in this world, there's a lot of bad entrepreneurship classes and bad seminars, and you can waste money on things if you're not careful and get good references and do your due diligence. But I think there's a definite place in the world for good entrepreneurial education, no matter where that's at. And I think these two people that you talked with were great examples of Yeah, of you know, that. as you were saying that, Mike, it got me to thinking a little bit about how oftentimes uh, education, uh, the, the further along you go, uh, you're getting narrower and narrower and narrower. You're, you're getting to be an expert in one particular topic, you know, mic- microbiology or, you know, some other topic. And I think one of the interesting things about both the MBA degree and entrepreneurship courses is that they tend to be much more broadening. Uh, they're, the, they're the courses that I've taken and, and, and have experienced where we say, oh my gosh, I, I didn't think of that, uh, right? I didn't know I had to worry about that. I didn't, I didn't realize that that was something that I'm going to have to deal with if I start a business. So I think that's one of the benefits of these workshops and these courses is they te- tend to be focused, but at the same time broadening and, and they're valuable whether you want to start a business or whether you work at an existing corporation or a large corporation. Uh, they're going to give you a set of skills uh, that will get you to look at things slightly differently than maybe you've looked at them in the past. And I think that's why there are some colleges and universities that are are sort of making at least one entrepreneurship course part of their core curriculum. And it's really about thinking and looking at problems differently. It's about opportunity recognition. It's about management of resources and skills. So it's a broad spectrum of, of skills that you can uh, develop. Agreed. So what do you think? Should we wrap this up? Sounds good to me, Mike. All right. Well, listeners, once again, uh, you've spent another 45 minutes or so with us. We hope that you enjoyed this podcasting adventure, uh, and we hope that you found it interesting and thought-provoking. As usual, we have a few small requests. First is if you have questions or opinions about what we've discussed, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, please do get in touch with us. The best way to reach us is by email, bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And secondly, if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe or like or whatever button it is on your podcast app that says, yeah, this is pretty cool and worth my time. Uh, It helps us. And if you really want to be radical and you want to write a short two-sentence review, that's great. Um, And then, of course, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So that's it for this week. Thank you for spending time with us. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. See you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. And from over here on the other side of the ocean in Münster, Germany, have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.